Let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the grace that you have showered upon us uh, day after day. When we feel weak, when we're trembling, when we're discouraged, uh, you bring light into our situation and you remind us that in every moment you are upholding us. You stiffen our spines um, and you keep us moving forward. Uh, Father, we just pray that you plant your, spirits within, your spirit within our hearts uh, so that our love would be totally, so that all the sin would be abandoned from our hearts and that our love would be totally placed and fixed upon you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are out of the season of Pentecost. Uh, this is the second Sunday of what the church calendar calls ordinary time, which stretches out from last Sunday, Trinity Sunday, until the beginning of Advent on December 3rd. So that's basically like six months of what's called ordinary time. And in ordinary time, we don't order our hearts by living into Jesus' story as we do in the six months from Advent to the end of Easter at Pentecost. So you're Martha Melissa, so you kind of know the whole church calendar thing. Uh, I explain it sometimes for people who aren't as familiar. But basically, just to go over it again, the, the church calendar helps train our desires and affections by helping us pattern our lives on Jesus' life. So during Advent, with the Jews who are longing for the birth of the Messiah, we learn how to long for the second coming of Christ, right? In Christmas, it, it, we are taught how to experience joy and wonder that the almighty God who spins galaxies and suns in his very hand became a small baby lying in a manger. Uh, in Epiphany, we learn, like with the Magi who come bringing gifts, like John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus, we learn to have our eyes unveiled when we look at this Jesus. He's not just another person. He's the light of the world. With Lent, we're taught to prepare for the sufferings of this life and to see our sufferings as a participation in the sufferings of Christ who went to the cross. Good, Fr Good Friday teaches us how to despair, how to feel abandonment in a holy way, knowing that our abandonment will never compare to Christ's abandonment on the cross when he was totally abandoned, even by God the Father. And Easter teaches us that Christian life springs forth from the triumph of resurrection and the defeat of the grave. And Pentecost, which we celebrated two weeks ago, teaches us that the Spirit is real. I mean, sometimes in like CSI Martha churches, we don't like to talk about the Spirit that much. That sounds too Pentecostal, right? But the Pentecost is real. The Spirit is real. He dwells in our hearts, and God is truly present even when just two or three of us gather in his name. We should expect heaven to break out into earth among us. So after six months of this intentional focus on Jesus' life from Advent to Pentecost, uh, we have... Basically, that time could be called extraordinary time. We enter into these six months of ordinary time. And it can feel like a letdown. Uh, it can feel kind of dry because now you don't have anything like punching through and telling you this is how you should be feeling right now. Because now we try to live into the story of the church after Pentecost, the story of us now where we confess Jesus has ascended. We can't see him anymore, but we, we believe, we hope he's here. And the Spirit dwells in our hearts, but sometimes we don't always feel like that. And he, it's supposed to knit us together into a real community, but sometimes we don't feel like a real community. And all the, the whole time we're doing that, it, during the six months of ordinary time, we should face the nagging doubt in the back of our mind. Is this all going anywhere? Or are we just marking time, Sunday after Sunday, with no real purpose, with no real end? What is the point of all of this? What is the point of the church as the church? 
And it's in the hope of answering that question that uh, we have decided that for the next 20 weeks, we are going to be looking from now until the beginning of Advent in December 3rd at the book of Acts of the Apostles. Uh, 28 chapters, so we're going to go through it, sometimes two chapters at a Sunday because we only have 20 weeks. And the book of Acts basically tells us the actions of the church, how the church behaved after Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. What is the church for? So like I said, we're examining uh, the book of Acts. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1 and 2 and seeing what it tells us about the purpose of the church. And whenever you read a story or a novel, oftentimes you'll find that the key themes and plot points are outlined and foreshadowed right at the beginning of the book. So you think of A Tale of Two Cities, right? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And really, that one opening line summarizes the rest of the book. You see the utter depravity, the, the, the hopelessness of men, but in the midst of that, you see pure beauty at the end. Have you, have you read the book? Yeah. yeah. At the end, yes, yeah, Sidney Carton doing something so gracious as to die in the place of another person. That's the end of the book, right? So you see the very best and the very worst at the same time. And when we, in the exact same thing happens with the book of Acts. When we look at the first two chapters, we see the major themes and plot points are all summarized right here. So when we look at this chapter, we see that Christ, first of all, Christ founds a new world. The task of the church is not itself to change the world. The task of the church is to bear witness to the world that God has already changed the world because of Jesus Christ. And so now we invite everyone to enter into this, this new world through which we are looking at everything through gospel lenses by the power of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, therefore, and this is kind of complicated and I hope to show you this without taking up too much time. Uh, secondly, the task of the church is to implement the resurrection of Christ in anticipation of the final reconciliation of all things in the new heavens and new earth. Because, right, we've talked about this here in the last few Sundays. I know this is your first time. But the point is not for individual souls to be evacuated from the earth and go to heaven. That's not the point of the biblical scripture. The point is that heaven is coming down to earth. And we are telling everyone, hey, heaven is coming to earth. Live in that reality now. Make way for our God who is coming to be king. Jesus Christ is already ruling, but one day God will be all in all and it will be present to everyone. That's the picture we see at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. So let's dig in, uh, start with Acts chapter 1. And uh, the book of Acts is written by Luke, who was a companion of Paul. It's kind of a sequel to his gospel. And so let's start with Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So notice what's happening here. Jesus has risen from the grave, and then he appears to the disciples, the apostles. But look at verse 2. Even though he's appearing, he has to convince them. He has to convince them with many proofs. Because... They're not sure, like, if, if 
someone I knew died showed up to me, I'd be like, am I going crazy right now? Is this an illusion? Is this a ghost? How do I really know that you rose from the dead? That's, you know, the story of Thomas, right? He needed to touch Jesus. And he tells the disciples to stay in Jerusalem so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. And then you read on, he's, and as he's teaching them, he's lifted up on a cloud and ascends to heaven. And I know that's a weird picture to us, but let me just read it, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and while he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now what's interesting about this passage is that it shows us the ascension from the standpoint of earth. And it's kind of weird to us, this idea that there's like this cloud and he goes up into the sky. Because as scientific people, we know that if you just go into the sky, you're going into the black of space. So what's happening here? Like, is Jesus going back into space? Is he spaceman? No, actually no. This is a callback to an Old Testament prophecy where the prophet Daniel has a vision of this same event, but from the standpoint of heaven. This is a picture of Jesus entering into another dimension, another reality that we call heaven. And so this is Daniel in uh, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is ruling now. With the ascension, Jesus Christ was enthroned in heaven, and he rules over creation, judging it and extending his reign until all powers submit to him. But let's return to Acts chapter 1. The apostles are kind of left there, standing around, maybe a little uncertain about what this all means. But they remember they're supposed to stay in Jerusalem, so they stay in Jerusalem. And the book of Acts in chapter 1 tells us, while they were staying together praying, they were just a community of about 120 people. So in all the world, only 120 people at that time confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord of the universe. And Peter stands up among them and he tells them, hey guys, we used to be 12 witnesses who knew Jesus from the beginning of his baptism right up until the moment of his ascension. Now there's only 11 of us, obviously, because you know Judas hung himself. So we got to replace him. So they choose lots, and they select another person who had been the, with them from the very beginning to kind of step into that role of the 12th witness, uh, and that was Matthias. And then we come to Acts chapter 2. So this community of 120 people is being faithful to what Jesus has told them. They're staying in the upper room of a house, and they're praying. And while they're praying during the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. Now, I've already talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the past few weeks, so I'm not going to go into too much detail on that specifically. But as the disciples are praying, the fire falls down upon them, right? And the Spirit descends, and they begin to prophesy. And there's such a big commotion, there's such a big noise, that the people who have come into Jerusalem to visit for the feast, they look, come to this house to see what's going on. Uh, and a lot of these people are Jewish but it's kind of like the Indian diaspora, right? We grew up in America, we mostly speak English. There are you know, some Indians in France, they speak French, blah, blah, blah. 
So these Jews, a lot of them grew up in Arabia. They speak Arabian. They grew up in Persia. They, they speak Persian. And they hear this community of 120 people praising God in their own language, and they're amazed at it. That's speaking in tongues, right? And they ask each other, what could this mean? But some people scoff at them and say, oh, these guys, these guys are just drunk. Look at these poor fishermen. You know, these are poor people mostly. They must be at the bottle at like nine in the morning. Uh, and so Peter again stands up. He hears all this. He stands up to address the crowd. And he preaches the very first public sermon of the church. And what is the content of his message? I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. It's not that long. It's Acts chapter 2. But this is the very first gospel message. He says, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, descended from the line of David. He came preaching the nearness of the kingdom of God and did many signs. But the rulers and authorities executed him. But while the powers of the world killed him for evil, God meant it for good, for our good, to purchase us from destruction. And God raised Jesus on the third day, and now he's ascended to the throne of heaven, and he's judging the world. And he ends with that. He is judging the world right now. And the people ask, what are we supposed to do to save ourselves? And Peter tells them, repent, believe, and be baptized. So Peter preaches to this crowd by the power of the Spirit, and that day 3,000 people are baptized and saved. And so here we come to the end of chapter 2 of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because of the many wonders and signs that were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and owned everything in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So this is the first point. Jesus Christ birthed a new reality at the cross. He brought forth a new world order. So the purpose of the, of the church is not to change the world, because the world has already been changed. The purpose of the church is to be witnesses to the change. So I was just talking about Luke's picture of the ascension. Matthew's gospel gives us a different picture of the ascension. And it tells us that Jesus commissioned his disciple with these words. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So remember, Luke had portrayed Jesus' parting words to the disciples uh, before the ascension in this way. It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. So the reason why I'm telling you this is that when we put these two narratives together, we see that the task of the church is to be a witness to Jesus' authority and power throughout the world and to make disciples from all the nations into the way of Jesus. So to give greater context to this task and to understand why the disciples, they're asking, before Jesus says that, they're asking Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? To understand why the disciples were asking that, we have to keep in mind another prophecy from Daniel. So do you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, of the statue? You probably will once I say this. He dreamt of a statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. Like, so the head was gold, the chest was silver, 
the belly was bronze, the thighs were... No, you don't remember. It's, it's fine. All right, so there, there was... Trust me, it's in Daniel chapter 2. There is this uh, prophecy. And that statue that he sees is smashed by a stone that was cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. So it's kind of a weird picture. There's a stone, there's a mountain nearby at the statue, there's a stone cut out of it, but not by human hands, and it falls on top of this statue and crushes it. And then that stone grows until it fills the whole earth. And Nebuchadnezzar is really troubled. He's like, Daniel, explain to me what the stream means. And Daniel explains it to him. The statue re- represents the empires of the world. All around us, there are political authorities and spiritual realities behind those political authorities. And one after another, they come believing that they have a manifest destiny to rule the world the way that they see fit and to treat people the way that they see fit. So first come the Babylonians, then come the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And if you keep on going down the centuries, after the Romans, there are the Gauls, right, the barbarians, the British, you know, the Americans, even today. There are empires in this world that rule the world. On it and on it goes. And if you are one of the people constantly being conquered, like the Jews, then you long for a day that God is going to come and wipe out the violent empires that are oppressing everyone. You long for the day that, Jesus, that God will come and create a new civilization, one based not on power and might makes right, but on justice and peace and healing. That was the dream of the Hebrew prophets. If you read Isaiah, it's full of that. And Daniel foresaw a day in this vision. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, what your vision means is that there is a day coming when the idolatrous empires that rule the world will be crushed by a stone cut from a mountain but not by human hands. And this stone is going to be a kingdom that grows until it fills the whole earth. And Jesus Christ is that stone cut from the mountain, very God of very God, who comes down by the power of the Spirit to crush the empires of evil and establish a kingdom of justice and light that stands forever. He established that kingdom on the cross and with his resurrection. This kingdom is built on a new foundation, not on power, not on the backs of conquered enemies, but by a man who comes to die out of love for enemies, a man who sacrifices himself out of love. This is a new civilization, the kingdom of God. There are many debates on the exact relationship between the church and the kingdom of God, and I'm not going to get into that there because it's really academic. But the point is, what the scriptures I was reading to you before show us is that all believers are witnesses to the reality that Christ really has founded this new kingdom. We believe that. He has ascended and reigns. That's a crazy thing to tell people if you really think about it. You think that a Jewish guy who was basically homeless and died naked on a cross, uh, tortured to death, is the risen king of the universe. This entire, not just this like small rock of a planet, but the entire universe. And we Christians are people who say, yeah, that sounds right to us. We're witnesses to that. And we believe that he's going to rule until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the sermon that Peter preached to a crowd of 3,000 Jews 2,000 years ago. In the words of the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All of human existence now belongs to Christ now. 
And we praise God because it, because it belongs to Christ. Because if it belongs to Christ, it will be redeemed and it will live. So this is an important distinction, and I hope we both grasp it. Uh, we do not ourselves create the new reality of the kingdom. We don't create it on our own. God creates this reality uh, by the power of the Spirit and through Christ. Instead, we receive this new reality, we live under it, and we offer it to the world for their blessing. And again, that's much of what's going on in Peter's sermon. That's why the Spirit has come to help us confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's the first point. Second point, we see when we get to the end of the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, we see what um, implementing the resurrection looks like. That's the second point. So let me read that again to make, help make sense of that. Verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We need to understand this. Our witness to the world that Jesus is Lord is not only in what we say. Uh, it's not, I think in a lot of Christianity in the modern world, we privatize our Christianity, right? Like, so I'm a Christian, but it doesn't necessarily affect the rest of the way that I live. It's kind of a private belief. But Christianity is a public faith. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, then that means that our sins are forgiven, our debt is paid on the cross, death and the devil no longer have any power over us, and we live without fear. And that has implications for everything about the rest of the way that we live. It's a public faith. So it's not in just what we say, but in how we live. We Christians are like people sent from the future, uh, new creation, where God has made everything perfect. By faith, we live as if the new creation were already pressing into the present here, now, through us. So what does that mean? That's a, it's an interesting thought, but what does that mean? To live as the new creation and to offer the new creation to the world. I believe what it means is that the task of the local church is to witness to the world the truth of who Jesus is by implementing his resurrection today as an anticipation of the perfection of the world that is coming at the end of time. So I think Paul makes this clear at the end of his long argument on why resurrection is so central to Christian faith in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. So if you ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a long chapter. It's like 58 verses. And for 57 verses, he's tightly packing this argument because apparently there were some Corinthians who were saying, I don't think we're really going to rise again when we die. And I don't even really know if Jesus rose from the dead. But that's not really what's important, right? What's important is being a good person, blah, blah, blah. Jesus died uh, for the salvation of our sins. If we're physically going to rise from the dead, that doesn't matter. My spirit is going to be in heaven. That's the point. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. He's saying... If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a lie, he says our faith is worthless and we are, of all people in the world, to be pitied as fools. Because all of our hope is based on the, on the idea that it's not just my spirit that's going to be saved. It's my physical reality that's going to be saved. I will be raised from the dead. Uh, this, and, th and that has implications for this world. This physical world around us, it's not going to be burned up. It's going to be redeemed somehow. Heaven and earth are going to unite. 
And so that's why after Paul has been saying for 57 verses, he's assuring us we're going to be resurrected from the dead. In verse 58, you may think the logical conclusion to a passage like that would be something like, therefore, keep your chins up when you're persecuted, because even if they kill you now, you're going to get a new body when you die, right? That's what you would think that verse 58 would be. But that's not how Paul concludes. Instead, he says something very interesting. He writes in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So why does he end it like that? And I think Paul here is hearkening back to the message. All of Scripture is so interrelated. And if you don't see how all the connections come, sometimes you miss some of these connections. Um, and Paul here is hearkening back to the message of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, where the teacher throughout the book says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's really interesting, and it's really, really depressing. Because the point of the book is this. There is no point to anything because of death. That's the central, yeah, yeah, vanity, everything. Yeah, yeah. Vanity of vanity. Everything is vain. Your work, it's vain. Because either you're going to work until you're old and then you're going to die. And now you can't enjoy the fruits of your work anymore. And even if you say, well, it's going to go to my children, well, your children may be good or they may be dead, bad, but they're also going to die. And eventually your line is going to run out. The statistical odds are high that your children and your descendants are not going to remember you. So what is the point of anything? Existence is meaningless. In a world governed by death, our families, our labor, and our entire lives can lose meaning. On a long enough time scale, there's only death and everything is meaningless. And so what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, is to point out that if the resurrection is true, then nothing is meaningless. Because death is not final. The resurrection infuses all of our activities with meaning and significance. Cosmic meaning and significance. As the church, what we do in the name of Christ will last forever. It will echo through eternity. So what we do now matters. Our labor is not in vain. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. So as the church, we live after the time of Pentecost when we are given the Spirit, but before the time of what's called parousia, when, uh, the appearing, when Christ will appear again, the second coming. As Paul wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we all build upon the foundation of Christ, and our work will be tested on the last day as by fire. The gold, silver, and precious gems in our work that we spend our lives building, it's going to be purified and redeemed and mysteriously somehow included in the new creation, and the builder will be rewarded. But all that we build that is wood, straw, and hay will burn up, and the builder will suffer loss. I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 3 to see that. And so our task in this in-between period, between Pentecost and the second coming, is not to build the kingdom, because we don't build the kingdom, Christ builds the kingdom, but to build for the kingdom. As the church, we implement the resurrection of Christ so as to anticipate the final new creation. So as I said, these first few chapters are a preview of themes we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. And in the book of Acts, over and over again, we're going to see example after example of how the early church implemented the resurrection. And we're going to talk about each of them in more detail. Peter and Paul healing the lame man. Paul, uh, Peter and John, sorry, healing the lame man. Paul driving out the demon from the slave girl. Peter realizing that salvation 
is not for the Jews only. He overcomes his racism, and he preaches to the Romans, to the Gentiles too, the people who are oppressing him. Paul confronts the principalities and powers when he comes to trial in front of the Roman courts. Uh, The church in Jerusalem provides for all the orphans and widows and poor in their midst. This is all the work of implementing the resurrection. And just like Jesus, uh, I think beautifully, the first martyr, Stephen, dies loving and forgiving his enemies. That's the last words out of his lips before he dies. Because of Christ and through the Spirit, the church bears fruit before God for the blessing of the world. This is what it means to implement the resurrection. It's by being a people who really believe and who prove in the way that we live our lives that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the kingdom of God truly is present amongst us. And so mission is at the very heart of the life of the church. The church should not be mostly concerned about its own inner lives and programs. I know like in our church, we get caught up with a lot of like programs that are happening. I know at Martha Church, you guys have Sports Day, which is a huge deal, and it's really cool. But that, the church doesn't exist for its own internal life. The church lives for the sake of the world. As Jesus was to Israel, so the church is to be to the world as an extension of Christ. So it's not easy to make a straightforward answer as to how our work in the new creation will be included by grace um, But we have some assurance that when we feed the hungry and when we clothe the naked and when we house the homeless, as Christ tells us in Matthew 25, when we bring beauty to the world through music, through art, uh, when we labor in our workplaces, somehow mysteriously, when we do that and commit it to the name of Christ, none of it will be wasted. All of it will be meaningful and redeemed in the new creation, and it will echo throughout eternity. That's what we're promised. Christians are those who have confidence that because of the resurrection, everything that we do has meaning before God. So N.T. Wright summarizes his thoughts on the connection between the mission of the church and the resurrection of Christ and Pentecost in his book, The Challenge of Easter. And I think that's a good way to close this first sermon on Acts, chapters 1 and 2. So this is N.T. Wright. Our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to the world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to the world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to a world that only knows exploitation, fear, and suspicion. Humans were made to reflect God's creative stewardship into the world. Israel was made to bring God's rescuing love to bear upon the world. Jesus came as the true Israel, the world's true light, and as the true image of the invisible God. He was the true Jew, the true human. He has laid the foundation, and we must build upon it. We are to be both the bearers of his redeeming love and of his creative stewardship to celebrate it, to model it, to proclaim it, to dance it. So because of the resurrection of Christ, the church is a community of renewed human beings able to bear the image of God again. This image of God, which is Jesus Christ, transforms our hearts so that we participate in his ministry of reconciliation as a church of renewed worship and mission. That's the message of the book of Acts as a whole, and we're going to continue with that for the next 19 weeks, and that's the purpose of our church today. Let's stand and affirm the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, The Apostles' Creed is the creed of faith that binds us together with the faith of our forefathers and with the faith of our future children.